Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by journalist Jane Hamilton. Now Jane is an award-winning crime reporter and has worked in journalism for over 20 years. Prior to that she was a full-time teenage mum of two and then a part-time student where she has also worked as a model, a barmaid, a TV extra and also a newspaper sub-editor. After volunteering at a local free paper Jane's first proper journalism job was with the Edinburgh Evening News. And over the past few years, she has worked at various times on all of the national newspapers. And for the past six years, she has been back working at the Daily Record. Jane, thanks for joining us on the Read All About It podcast. Thanks for asking me, Paul. Now, I'm not sure, you know, we've corresponded a bit before we did this podcast. And I always think I should really start with an apology because I know having asked you to do this, you've agonised and agonised on your, your choices because I'm just asking for five books and, and as any book lover will tell you it's impossible to choose any of your favourites or even the books that you don't like so I'm, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot like that. <laughs> yeah you have now put me on the spot it's taken me weeks and weeks and weeks to get the, the list down to our final five it's been quite difficult it's not an easy question you know especially when you're somebody that reads a lot of books Give me five examples, you know, it's hard, it's very hard, and I apologise in advance to any authors that I may offend by leaving them out or... But you know, the thing is, I always say to people as well that we're doing this interview today and you've got your five book choices. See, if we did the interview tomorrow, you could choose another five books and then the same again. Oh. Because as you say, especially if you do read a lot, different books will come into your head and different ones you want to recommend. And I, mean, I suppose that's the beauty of books, really. Yeah, I mean, that that's the joy of books, is it not? Every day there's something different to discover and new authors. And I don't admittedly get to read as much as I would like to nowadays. Work's long, but and then at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to be I'm too tired to pick up a book but I do try and I try and keep abreast of what's current particularly in the books that I like and enjoy which is predominantly crime strangely enough it's kind of like a busman's holiday for me sometimes because you again when we were just corresponding you described yourself as a bookworm but also you said that books were your first and and your real love and I suppose you know before we go on to talk about your favorite childhood book that will go right back to your childhood of I mean can you remember a time when you weren't reading Never, never. I remember, I think I was about five and I was allowed to join where we lived. It was a mobile library. It used to come to, I lived with my grandparents and my granddad wasn't a big reader, but my nana was. But it was all historical romances and, you know, Mills and Boone and stuff. So when I was five, I was allowed to join the, the local library and they would come every fortnight. And back in, you know, late 70s, we were allowed to go, to, you know, wander about ourselves without any, you know, fear of anything. So she said, yeah, you can go down to the library and join the library. So I went off, I trotted down to this mobile library, all excited that I could join and get books. And I thought if I went home and read all the books quickly, I could run back down before they left and go and get another three, because you were only allowed to have three books. So I remember getting the three books, rushing home, going through them. I don't even remember what they were, but, you know, there were picture books with some words in them. You know, so I was five. I was not a bad reader for five. And I remember saying to my nana, I finished those books already. I'm going back to the library. And off I trotted back down to the library, which was at the end of the street. And the librarian said, no, 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 you have to wait two weeks. You can't come back and bring the books back today. I wasn't happy with that. So I trotted off back up the road, said to my nana, do my hair differently and I'm going to change my clothes. I thought she wouldn't recognise me if I went back down and asked to get some more books. But, you know, I was five and, yeah, I don't remember a time at all where books weren't part of my life. It's interesting you saying that. and I've had this discussion a few times with people, sometimes in relation to, I, I always tell the, the story of my three kids when they were growing up and they, they obviously surrounded by books. We read to them. One of my daughters is the voracious reader. My oldest daughter reads sometimes and my son doesn't read at all. And I, I sometimes wonder, although you can develop that love of books, there is part of me that thinks it's maybe just something that you're born with. And you know that way when you learn to read, there's part of you just thinks this is the most magical thing. For other people, that doesn't happen. 
It's strange because neither of my children are big readers. My daughter reads now and again, but she's got two children, so she's really busy. But my son doesn't pick up a book at all and never has. My family, my mum is a massive reader, but I, yeah, I didn't live with my mum. So and my nana, you know, as I say, she read historical romances, trashy stuff that you pick up and forget in five minutes. But and maybe, I don't know, I think, it, I think I was born with it, to be honest, because my family say they don't ever remember a time where I wasn't with a book in my hand or a notepad or pretending that I was going to, I was writing a story or doing all sorts of things like that. So I think you're born with it. You've either, it's something that's either ingrained in you or it's not. In terms of your childhood reads, and again, <clears> this is the, the first of the five difficult questions I posed to you, and that was your know, favourite book from childhood. And in the end, the one, well, it was the famous five series, the yep. Brighton books, and the one that you chose, if you had to choose one, was the very first of, of the series five on Treasure Island. What was it about those books that, that made you choose them? The appeal to my sense of adventure. Now, I'm aware of the controversy surrounding Enid Blyton nowadays because obviously her books are perceived as being very, you know, racist and um, class. I just, I don't buy into any of it because when I was six and seven reading those books, for me, it was the adventures that those children were going on and the fact that this girl wanted to be a boy really appealed to me because I wasn't a typical pink and bows and princessy type child you know I like I like the, the fact that those kids were going off and having all those adventures with their dog and solving all those mysteries and even though sometimes the books spooked me at times you know I got frightened when they said that you know the, the man was coming into the cave with them and things like that and of course I'm only on six or seven and I'm thinking oh my, my goodness there's a bad man coming but it, I wasn't frightened enough to stop reading and I think because I was being brought up with my grandparents and also there was 10 of us living in the house and I was the youngest obviously my aunties and my uncles all lived there too but they were all older and you know out going to parties and discos so I was the youngest and I used to just imagine that it was all of us you know I was I was George the main girl and you know my one of my uncles was uh, Julian and I like to think of the food, the descriptions of the food, the picnics that she, you know, because we're, we're talking about, you know, mid-70s, money wasn't, money was tight. So you're reading these books where these kids are having those fantastic picnics and the descriptions was just, I don't know, I think it just made me wish that I was one of the famous five. I read every single book every single one and each one was as good as the last one but I always went back to Treasure Island over and over and over. Because I think there's 22 books in the series and again when just before we were recording this I was just checking and she, she has sold I think to date about 600 million copies of her books. Wow which is just extraordinary. And I always remember, because I always remember reading The Secret Seven and Famous Five. And you know that, I again, just talking about that idea of you find that love of books. But even as children, when it's a series of books and, you know, you maybe, as you say, maybe get three out of the library, you read the first three, and then you want to go back and read the next three. And it's, it just captivates you and you want to find out the next adventure, what happens, what happens. And, and that's, yeah. that's the beauty because then you're hooked from then. I remember the only, as I got a bit older... And getting through the book, I remember getting annoyed that they didn't seem to be growing up like me. They weren't getting any older. And that started to annoy me. I think I was probably about 11, 12 when I started to think they're not getting any older. And I moved on to other teenage books. I remember feeling annoyed and frustrated at the time that George wasn't getting any older and she wasn't becoming a boy. And, you know, it didn't have any connotations for me, you know, about gender or anything like that. It was just to me as a six-year-old child, this little girl wanted to be a boy and I wanted to follow her on that journey. And as, as the book went on, it, the books went on, it never, nothing ever changed. You know, she stayed the same. She was frustrated. She wanted to be a boy and she wanted to identify as a boy and everybody accepted that but she never got any older and that I remember that being an eternal source of frustration however it didn't diminish my enthusiasm for them I suppose that's the point where as you say you then move on to, to other things but have you ever at any time been tempted to go back and even you know even say when your, your own kids were we just to to read them again and, and what was the reaction 
I tried when Leanne, my daughter, I had uh, my daughter when I was 17 and I tried to instill in her, you know, this love of reading. And as a, a child, she was, you know, she loved it. I remember trying to read The Famous Finder. <laughs> she wasn't interested. It was a different time, a different era. And she was, if memory serves, she liked The Worst Witch which I also liked as a child. And she, even today, she still has that fascination with witches and, you know, vampires and wizards and that sort of thing. So she wasn't interested in the famous five. She said, you know, that's silly, mummy. How could children solve mysteries, murders and stuff like that? So no, she's just not. I've often thought about going back to read them because obviously you hear and you see discussion about Blayton's work. I think I, I read something recently, um, maybe in The Guardian or something, you know, where they said that she was uh, she was just a snob. I don't agree with that. I don't, maybe as an adult, I think I can, you know, look back and say, yeah, that's a bit off. Or, you know, she's relegating, you know, some sections of society to, she's putting them in their box. But to, as, a, as a child with no idea of what, snobbery is or you know sexism or racism is I mean I had no clue about any of that as a child to me it was just about five children and their dog going off and having those fantastic adventures at their auntie and uncle's house and getting into all sorts of escapades you know and I don't agree that we should be forcing our modern ideals on books from the past you know they were written to the, a certain time those books would have been published between, I think, the 1940s and 60s. We, I would have read them in the, in, the, in the 70s. And it was fine. It didn't, maybe didn't jar with me the way that, as you say, your daughter's generation or my kid's generation would. Because obviously things have moved on and they've got different experiences. I always think she would have encouraged a whole generation or several generations of readers. That is a, a, it's just a great gift. Absolutely, absolutely. To hold children, you know, 600, what did you say, 600 million books? Yeah, over, over, I think that's the current total. I mean, you know, to hold children for that amount over, not just one novel or two novels, which is hard for any writer to, you know, turn out, but 22 novels of the, you know, with the same characters. And probably, think you know, I can't remember every single plotline, but probably the same formula for every single yeah. book. And to be able to sustain that over that period of time, even, I don't know, I don't know if they still sell today. I don't know if any, you know, children today, if they've been updated or if children today are still interested. But I mean, that is, you know, you can't take that away from her. You know, she, she certainly made my childhood a lot happier. And, you know, for that, I'll always have a, you know, a place in my heart for Enid Blyton, as snobbish as she may be. <laughs> in terms of, obviously, this is your literary journey, so we take you from childhood, and then the next book is your teenage formative years, and the book, there was actually two books that, that you gave me. The first of those was a William McIlvanny novel, Doherty. What, what was it about that McIlvanny no novel in particular? I came from a, I come from a working class family in Edinburgh, albeit, and, you know, we're not all posh. I know the misconception <laughs> is in Edinburgh, you know, we're posh. But, you know, I come from a working class family and I remember picking up McIlvanny's book in my grand, my grandmother's house, my other grandmother, my dad's mum, who was a big reader, but she was a more refined reader. You know, she liked novelists like McIlvanny and, um, a Scots Square and stuff like that. So, you know, she had a, a sort of more extensive library than historical romances or Mills and Boone, which I had to devour as a child too, um, because that was all there was lying around. Yeah. <laughs> so I picked up McIlvanny and she said to me, you won't like that book. And I said, why not? And she said, it's all about men. And I absolutely loved it. And it was probably the first time her and I disagreed on a book because we, we very much alike and... I said I absolutely loved it. She was a, a, a very much a feminist and she didn't like the way McIlvanny always portrayed, you know, the men as being the main people, the main, you know, alpha males. I just loved it. I loved the fact it's about pride and dignity in your, in your roots. And I had, you know, I come from a working class family. I was a teenage mum and I was probably on course to become a statistic of my background divorced parent, brought up with grandparents, pregnant as a teenager, 
and probably expected to just not achieve anything with my life. And I just always find his books to be motivating because because even though they were about working class and keeping your dignity and stuff, it, it wasn't just about what you have, but who you are. You know, it was more about the type of person that you are rather than how much you've got. Doherty was all, you know, desperate circumstances. You know, a dad who was trying to keep his son from going down the pit and that was not going to happen. It's just about trying to stay positive and that's what Doherty is about. You know, if you, you'll read between the lines of it, that's what Doherty was all about. And it's funny because they never meet your heroes. And Willie was a big hero of mine and I ended up working with him about uh, 1997 when I was doing the TV extra thing. I was cast in a TV programme, a, a Channel 4 documentary. I was playing Romola Najinsky, the ballet dancer's wife. Right. And Willie had been cast as Diagolev. I don't know if you know, but Najinsky um, was gay and was involved in a love triangle with a man named Diagolev. And I remember being told that William McElvaney was going to be my co-star and thinking, oh my God, because he reminded me of Clark Gable. And I remember thinking, oh my God, oh my God. And we spent a couple of days filming. Uh, it was on Channel 4 broadcast not long after Willie died, actually. They never meet your heroes, but he was absolutely amazing. I remember him saying to me, so what are you going to do with your life? Because at the time I was studying English part-time. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, probably be an English teacher. He says, no, 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 don't do that. Do something else. I'm not going to obviously reveal, you know, private conversations that we had, but he became a big influence in my life of crime. I think maybe he probably meant, you know, go and write your own novel. And <laughs> I don't think he meant go and mix with uh, serial killers and uh, whatnot. But he was a big, massive influence on me. And I love all of his books, all of them. And I've still got that copy that, of Doherty that my gran oh, really? gave me. She passed away just a few, couple of years ago. So, yeah, I've still got that. You know, like, like books as a physical product, when you remember them, because that, that book isn't just about that story, that's about your gran. You know, like when you pick up that copy, you obviously know Willie McIlvany, but then obviously it's, there's a family connection. As, so it's so much more than just... Yeah, I mean, she's, um, she's also the influence behind McLarity as well, because when I was... Because I got pregnant quite young, I had, you know, I'd finished, I'd finished school and I got pregnant quite young and I had to go back and do my hire. And I had to choose a book as part of my, to do my higher English. And I remember agonising over it. And she, she was the one that said to me, a time to dance. Because, I mean, obviously it was before my time. I think Time to Dance was first published in maybe, you know, 74 or something. It could be wrong. I think it was the early, 82? 82, 82, right. Yeah. I knew it was, but I knew it was just before, you know. And so I went back and I read it and... I wasn't a short story fan at all. You know, I like to be able to delve into a book and be... I'm one of those readers where I want to get through it fast, but I don't want it to end, particularly if I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And I always get incredibly jealous when I finish the book and a friend tells me they're just starting it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so jealous. I wish I could go back and read it again. <laughs> McClarity, it just... I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's a collection of old sort of different short stories. Some of them are mysteries and one of them is about two women that set up, they have this great idea of let's say uh, we'll do phone sex, you know, <laughs> and it's we'll, we'll charge for it. You know, people will phone us up. And I don't know if, you know, chat up lines were something that were doing the rounds in 82, but there was just something about the short stories that, they, you know, they were punchy and they grabbed you right away. And even though they weren't 360 pages long, they were still something that you would go away. And some of them, you know, you were you went away thinking, oh my God, that was really sad. And, um, you know, or you wanted to know more about the characters. I remember thinking in a couple of them, I wish you'd do a book, a standalone book. I still have that book. I still have that penguin copy that she gave me. So, yeah, it's about, you know, things that remind me of her. Are you one of these people that, that you don't get rid of your books? You, you Obviously, that's two books. You know, that was like Doherty, William McIlvany, I Time to Dance, Bernard McLafferty. But do you hold on to them? Are you loath to let any of them go? Um, I learned my lesson the hard way because uh, I used to, because I was, you know, that's if I had any spare money, that's where it went on a book. You might remember, but back in the day before the internet and buying books on Amazon, 
all new books came out on a Thursday. And I'd be one of those ones that was at, you know, the bookshop, Watersons or whatever, you know, Blackwells or whatever, on a Thursday, buying the latest releases. I learnt my lesson the hard way because I would lend the books out and never get them back again. So now I'm kind of like, no, you're not getting my book. My mum tried to sneak in now again. And I think actually she was visiting at the weekend there and I think she sneaked away with a couple of my books. Because I've said to a couple of people, I'm the same as you, that there's part of me that, you know, that if you read a good book, you know, you're saying you get jealous if you've read a book and then somebody else is about to start it. But you know, that yeah. way when you, when you read a book, you want to tell everybody about it. But there are some books that I've read, I want to tell everybody about it, but I'm loath to lend my copy for the reasons that sometimes it'll come back, sometimes it won't. And I know in my head I'm saying, well, it's just a book and it will, it's on its journey. But it's nice sometimes to open your bookshelf and you see that book there and you might read it again or you might know it. If it was up to me, I would have a library. I would have floor to ceiling, rolling ladders, <laughs> you know, that's what I'd have. The dream. And um, when my grand passed away, they're still, she's still got my aunt. She lived with her aunt, her sister, so my auntie. So she's, the books are all still there. Sometimes, you know, if you're visiting, you just walk into the house and you see all her books sitting on the bookshelf, you know, and you can just picture her sitting in her chair. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I suppose I do attach emotions to books, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really thought about it that way before. I, th- I think people do. I mean, it's interesting you were saying about Bernard McLafferty. For a while at the Celtic View, where I worked, we went for about two or three years where every month we would commission a short story from various either established Scottish writers or upcoming writers. And Bernard wrote a story for us called A Belfast Memory. And I think they later brought out a collection of his stories from, I think, all his various short stories. And that that story is in the book. And I've read a couple of his novels as well. Cal, obviously. And he wrote one a couple of years ago, Midwinter Break, which was... Just yeah, everybody seems to, you know, know him for the, the big movie, you know, especially, uh, it's a big bugbear of mine, I'm go- you're going to set me off on a rant here. That's okay. Um, it's a big bugbear of mine that when an author writes an, a fantastic, amazing book, and people like me and you read it, and we love it because we're readers, but then it goes on to the big screen, and everybody goes, oh, that film's amazing. Bad about, and you're like, it was a fucking book first. <laughs> it was a book. Read the bloody book. And then, you know, and they, they don't read the book. And you spend half your life explaining that it was a better book. And read the book, you know. Case in point, I know that we're going to speak about this man next, but um, Dennis Lehane, you know, with all his amazing books. And he's probably more famous for a film that Clint Eastwood directed. You know, it, it's a massive bugbear of mine because I always prefer the books yeah. to the movies. Books are always better, that's why. Yeah, because it's, it's, your, you know, your, it's your imagination along with the, you know, the authors. And if they're a good enough author, in your mind's eye, you, know, you can see exactly what they're describing. You don't need it to be visual from Hollywood. You know, it's probably all warped anyway, but if it's a good enough book, then your mind's eye should be enough. Tell me this, do you, is there ever an occasion where you watch a film and then you discover it's based on a book and then you go back and read the book? Maybe Captain Corelli's Mandolin, actually, but I wasn't impressed with it at all. So it's not the kind of book I would pick up anyway, but I probably didn't know that that was a book. Because it's not something that would grab me in the bookshop. Or maybe trashy ones, actually, that were on the TV. I went through a period when I was studying English. Because I was reading such heavy books for my degree, I went through a period of reading really trashy, beachy-type novels. I'm so ashamed of it now, but... Probably once we come off this, I'll go, oh my God, I've remembered, didn't know, remember that was, didn't know that was a book. Because the one that I... So my favourite film of all time is Field of Dreams. I don't know why, I just love that film, the Kevin Costner baseball Oh, film. Kevin Costner, yeah. And it's based on, it's actually based on a, a book by a Canadian writer called W.P. Kinsella, and the book's called Shoeless Joe. And so then I went back and read the book. I mean, in the book, it's wonderful. It's even better than the film, which I think the film's wonderful. But Oh, really? That's one where I discovered the book from the film. But I very rarely, you know, if you read a good book, so BBC have been showing a series, A Suitable Boy, and I read the book. The book is a, a, an amazing book, and I, I can't bring myself to watch the series because I know it will not come anywhere near being as, as good an experience yeah. as the book. So I'd rather just keep that experience. Mm-hmm. 
you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddihy, and my guest, Jane Hamilton. And Jane, we're on to the third question in the podcast, and that's a book that you would recommend to anyone. And again, it was, I know it was a difficult choice for you, and you gave me a couple of authors, one that we've already spoke about, William McIlvanian, and the other one is Dennis Lehan, or Lehan, I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation. Again, just talking briefly about William McIlvanian, because I always think the Laidlaw books are just amazing and the yeah. the first line in the papers of Tony Veach it was Glasgow on a Friday night the city of the stair I don't think there's been a better first line written in a book and I just absolutely love that line for me obviously it's I've said Doherty and I'm not you know I don't, I don't think I could ever be swayed from that one and I know I should probably say Laidlaw because that's obviously it wasn't until Laidlaw came out that propelled him as superstardom and I should probably say that that's, you know, what made him, you know, the godfather of Tartan Noir. But I have to say that nothing, nothing will dissuade me from Doherty. Close second, probably the big man. And I know that people will be surprised by that because I'm a crime writer and they probably think that the immediate go-to for me with McIlvanny would be Laidlaw. But no, it has to be the big man and Doherty. And if you're not a McIlvanny I find it hard to believe that anybody in this country hasn't read McIlvanny, but if you're, you know, if you haven't, those would be the two that I would tell people to pick up. The the other one I mentioned, Dennis Lehane. Uh, Dennis Lehane, yeah. Dennis Lehane. I read Mystic River, and I, it's a book that you know that question that I couldn't be paid to read again. The opening section of it, I was actually quite disturbed and unsettled by it. I, that's the quality of the writing. I thought. When I got to the end of that first section, I wasn't sure if I could continue. And I thought, what have I just read? It absolutely knocked me for six. And I don't think I could be paid to read it again because it had that effect on me, unsettling. But in a, in a way that it shows you how brilliant he was or is. He is. I mean, he's just, you know, I don't know how many books he's, he's written. For me, Lehane first came to attention because, like I say, I'm a big crime reader. I like thrillers and police procedurals and stuff like that. Probably, you know developed that over the years because of you know the job I do and people say oh do you not get fed up you know you're writing about crime all day and then you're going home and reading about it at night and I don't actually I like I like American crime and obviously I love Scottish crime books but for with Lehane it was his Kenzie and Gennaro series that I first picked up and I, I don't remember how I picked it up the first time but it was a book called A Drink Before the War and it was all about gangs and politics. And he's got these two private detectives. And I think probably they've got a bit of chemistry. They've got a past. But there's nothing obviously romantic in the books, you know. But his storylines are what grab you. His dialogue, some of it could, you know, probably a lot of people consider a bit cheesy and a bit following a formula that some authors will say, you know, we, we, write, we write a book it's not necessarily a literally genius, but we write to make money. And, you know, some people might argue that that's what Lehane did with Kenzie and Gennaro books. But, you know, he's, he's done quite a lot of standalone books, Mystic River. Oh, my God, my bookshelf's full of Lehane books, Shutter Island, um, which I don't know if you've seen that movie. I've, I've never seen the movie. No. I've read the book. I don't particularly fancy the movie. And then he's, he's particularly, he writes standalone mini thriller types. He's probably one of those writers that's probably more famous because of the, the films that have been made from his books, but he's got a massive back catalogue, which, you know, if you like police procedurals, then, you know, he's probably your man. Because I think as well, you know, that way as a reader, especially if you, you like an, an author and they've got like a few books, it's kind of good then because once you've discovered one, there's this endless supply of books that you can then, you can go. And then once you trust them and you know that they can tell a story that you like, then that's you, you've got, you've got plenty of reading material. I used to, the very, very, very early Patricia Cornwell books, her books, again, American Crime, and her early books were just amazing. You know, they were quite gritty, quite graphic, but wonderful descriptive stories of you know murder and mayhem but you know and terrifying and then after about book 12 or 13 I just wasn't able to pick her back up again you know it was it's, you get an author that you like and you look forward to their books coming out again and again and again and again but then when they start turning them out 
again and again and again. There's very few authors that have been uh, turned become, off by. Yeah, it becomes more like an industry. It's funny. I I've read a few of the you know the Lee Child books, the Jack Reacher series. I just picked one up recently, and it was just at random. And I think it's one of the more recent ones. And it did kind of have that formulaic feeling as if yeah. you're not almost 100% convinced that he wrote it. It's almost like a kind of factory. It's just like, you know, he maybe gives you the story and somebody's just producing it. I'm probably doing him a disservice, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed some of the earlier ones. Um, I uh, met Lee and Dennis Lehane, actually. I interviewed both of them in a triple interview with them. In fact, yeah, a triple interview with Lehane, Lee Child and Val McDermott for the Theakston Book right, Festival. Val. Yeah, but it was terrifying. Lee's given up writing the books now. I think it's going to be his brother yeah, that's taken yeah. over the franchise, you know. And I think once it starts getting to that feeling of a franchise, it does kind of take away the magic a wee bit, doesn't it? Because you feel like they're writing to a formula and they're playing to an audience. You know, for me, people say, why haven't you written a book? Why don't you do a book? Nine-year-old me is pissed off at me <laughs> because... That's what, you know, that was my dream. That was my ambition. I was going to write a book. Yeah, um, that, would, that would have been my, one of my questions to you. Given the fact that you said from, from your earliest childhood, you were proclaiming that you were going to be a, a novelist and you've, you've been involved in writing for so many years and you just devour books that there must be a wee part of you that, that looks in the bookshelves and thinks a Jane Hamilton book would look really good there. You know, I do, and I always say to people, you know, and I get annoyed with myself because, because I'm a, a crime reporter and that's what I deal with. And, uh, and I've been, you know, at the forefront of Scottish crime reporting probably, you know, for 20 years. And there's probably nothing that can shock me anymore. And there's nothing, you know, unfortunately, that I haven't seen or dealt with. I've seen the worst of what humans can do to each other. And I always feel that I don't think my imagination can conjure up, you know. But would there have to be a crime book? I don't know. I mean, maybe... Um, I could probably, I probably have got a book in Maine. I'm probably, I think at the bottom of it is probably just I'm too tired, you know, and I like the idea that I'm being entertained and I can pick up, I don't want to lose the magic with books and I worry that if I do churn out a book and, you know, people like it and then I have to turn out another one, you know, am I going to lose my own? I speak to a lot of writers and they all tell me they don't read, not one of them. Right. I very think that few really of them, Very few of them read. You know, I'm not going to name names, but there are writers that will not read a book because they're too busy trying to push their own work. So I think that worries me slightly. And also, I think when I'm, you know, have an idea for a book, because I've always got ideas turning away in my head. And, you know, I think, yeah, but that reminds me of a case I covered 15 years ago. So I often worry that, you know, I'd be writing not from my imagination, but from my professional life. So... You know, because the lines can get blurred a little, you know, because yeah. sometimes I'll pick up a book by authors and I'll think, I know that story. Oh my God, that was like, you know, a court case that I covered 10 years ago. So I do worry about that. And people say, well, do a true crime book, but not really my bag. Because I'm surprised, I mean, I'm surprised that any time I've ever read any advice to writers, it's always read a lot and write, obviously. But I mean, I suppose I'm not in that situation where you're completely consumed by your own book. So you never, listen, you never know. Never say never. Never say never. I have, I, you know, I get asked on a regular basis. I've had publishers come to me and ask, you know, if I'll do a book on X, Y and Z. And at the heart, I think one of the reasons that, you know, I'm, I think I'm a good reporter is because at the heart of my stories, I remember are people, real people. So I always feel that, you know, people ask me to write books on, sto on cases that I've covered, particularly the ones that I'm, supposedly an expert and I just it's not really my cup of tea if uh, if I've asked you for some books that you would recommend to anyone then the next question is a book that you couldn't be paid to read again and you've eventually boiled it down to one although you have admitted Ooh. that it, it could have been from a cast of thousands um, the one that you've chosen <laughs> is Flowers in the Attic by Virginia Andrews but was this a really difficult question to pick one out I suppose I'm I can be quite a fierce critic when it comes to books. I always say, if I can't get past the first paragraph, I ain't picking your book up. You know, I'm one of those ones that go into a bookshop. Once I've read the synopsis, I'll go to the, front, the first page. And if I can't get by the first two sentences, it's going back on the shelf. I'm probably a bit more selective what I pick up nowadays. But back 
when I was young and just picking up anything to read. Like I say, I went through a really horrible period of reading rubbish, trashy books. My mum or my nana would just say, oh, there's a book, we read it, it was really good. And, you know, I would just, uh, I didn't have much money. So, you know, for quite a while when I was studying and two young kids, books were expensive. So it was beg, borrow and steal to read, you know, for a couple of years. So folk handed me trashy books, I would read them. So I think it was probably my nana that handed me the flowers in the attic. I had no idea what it was. And she was like, that was good. Oh my God. Because one of the one of the guests, the recent guest of the podcast, Catherine Simpson, who's an author, that was one of the books that she chose in the same category is that you couldn't, yeah, I couldn't. No way! Again. <laughs> I, I know Catherine and her husband. Oh my god, did she? Yeah, so she was kind of she called them because it was another one she chose. It was like these kind of she called them bodice rippers, but then she chose that one because that was a phenomenally successful. I think it sold over forty million copies. But she said, "Honest to God, incest! Oh yes. my jeez! Um, just like I'm surprised it's still in circulation now. I mean, I don't even know if it is, is it? I, I, I think so. You yeah. know, but it's just—I suppose you can't censor everything. But um, I remember I was in uh, uni. We were having a discussion about books, and I was reading. It. I was doing a dissertation on a Scots square, and somebody said, "I'm reading uh, Flowers in the Attic." Right. I was like, don't, uh, what better yet? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just know I would, it's probably going to get people rushing out to buy it, isn't it? No, I don't think so. Bad prose, bad characters, rubbish, unbelievable plot line. I mean, who the hell is going to hide their children in an attic for God knows how many years to bag an inheritance? I mean, seriously. Awful, awful, awful book. The point I was making to Catherine as well is that, you know, like sometimes books become a phenomenon and you're not sure why. And the ones I'd mentioned was the, that Fifty Shades of Grey series that suddenly seemed to explode and, and everybody in, in the world seemed to, to want to read them as well. If 40 million people read it, it doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean it was a good book. You were explaining there and, you know, when you go into a bookshop and how you maybe choose your books. But see, in terms of be, as a reader, once you start a book, do you finish it? Or, or if you're not enjoying it, do you put it down and pick something else up? It's very rare that I have picked up a book and not finished it. It might take me, given my professional life, it might take me a while longer than I would like to finish books. I think it took me uh, six weeks to finish Agent McKinty's The Chain, which right. everybody was, I think it's just recently won the Fixed and Crime Book of the Year That's Award. Right. Yeah, but yeah. It took me six weeks to finish that, whereas, you, you know, normally a book would take me maybe two or three days or if I really like it I'll stay up all night and finish it in one night a long time since I've been able to do that <laughs> just I find I've always found I know I only ask the questions but in terms of that category that's out of the five that would be the one I would struggle most with because I don't finish books that I don't enjoy so it, they don't leave a lasting impression on me so if I'm, if I'm not enjoying a book I'll put it down I might come back to it two or three times and then if it's still not working I'll put it out so it's very rare I get to the end of the book and go, God, I hate, I hated that because I just think there's always another good book that you could read rather than one that you're really toiling with. The one thing I can't read anymore, and if I pick up a book, which has surprised me that I picked up The Chain because normally I will avoid books with children as a central plot line or a victim like The Plague. And, you know, I've noticed that that's been more so since the grandchildren came along. I just can't bear the thought of, also, probably it's been a, a gradual thing for me to, through the job that I do, you know, I, I don't particularly like anything that involves violence against children or overt violence against women. And I know it's difficult to get away from, um, you know, if you're picking up a book and it's about, you know, serial killer, it's hard to get away from, you know, the violence of it and the, the bloodiness. But good authors will always find a way to express and tell their story without there being unnecessary violence or particular, because women are 99 times out of 100 the victims in all fiction books. In terms of the, the podcast, we're on to the, the last question, and that's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And interestingly, it's also, I'm always interested in this when you said you've got three on the go. And again, that's completely different. I'm a kind of one book at a time reader. During lockdown, I read War and Peace because I'd wanted to read it. So I would read that during the day, and then at night I was reading something different. That's the first time I've ever had more than one book on the go. So I'm, I'm impressed that you've given me a choice of three. 
how do you do that? Because it, you're having to jump from one to one to one. To be fair, it's, it was actually four because I had to read for work Professor David Wilson's latest book. And so I was, I had to read that really quickly. So I had to ditch the other books. But I find it quite easy to switch between books because it depends what mood I'm in. I mean, if you, all three titles that I gave you are all quite different books. I'm not, listen, I'm impressed. I've not managed to delve too much into Kate Atkinson's book just now. And she's a new author for me. Somebody recommended the book. So I can't really say whether I'm going to stick with it or not, but we'll, right. we'll see. And the Hallie Rubin book, um, I really wanted to. I, I'm not one for reading true crime, again, because of it, you know, it's too much like a busman's holiday. But the five, which is all about Jack the Ripper's victim, the five women who yeah. were murdered by the so-called Jack the Ripper. And if you read countless, countless, you know, stories about Jack the Ripper, it's always about him. And the women were just byproducts of this mystery of who Jack the Ripper was. And, you know, we've had countless things written about, you know, he might have been this member of the royal family or this member of the aristocracy, or he was, you know, doesn't matter who Jack the Ripper was. He's a predominant character, if you like, in any narrative about him. When somebody, it was actually a colleague at work, had said, I'm reading this book and I think, you know, you'll like it. And I was like, what's that about? And he's like, Jack the Ripper. And it sort of left me cold. And I was like, mm, really? No, don't fancy it at all. And he was like, no, 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 no. It's told from the perspective of the women. And it's all about their life. The author's gone to the trouble of trying to, you know, there's very, very little out there about who the women that died, you know, and they died horrific horrendous death you know they they must have suffered and they were probably you know to be a sex industry worker in at that time must have been horrendous anyway and then to die like that and you know there's very very little that's been written about them you know scraps of information about them so the author she's gone to the trouble of piecing together their lives before and they you know and then she's a very sympathetic view of it whereas before you know most of what I've read about Jack the Ripper just gives a cursory sort of nod to the victims when you know the victims should be at the heart of the story and not a byproduct because it's a book that my daughter Rebecca is the who's the voracious reader she had read that recently and she was talking to me about it and it was kind of the same reasons why you you've ended up reading it because because of the way it's been that Halle uh, Rubenhold has approached it and put the women at the centre and, and yeah. it's their story and it, he becomes the, the byproduct and it's actually about them. Uh, she she absolutely raved about it. I'm sort of getting through that one. What was the last book? What was the other book I said? The other book that you said, so the, the first one was The Big Sky, Kate Atkinson, then The Five and then the other one was Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Yeah, I've got, um, I'm in about two pages into that. And do you know the reason why? But a colleague, an ex-colleague has set up a book group on Facebook and it has been popping up time and time and time again. And it's not, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's the cover that grabs me and not the title. The cover is not something that would have attracted my eye ordinarily because it's it's got quite a sort of romantic looking cover you know and I don't read romance or anything like that at all and I wouldn't have picked it up but it's been appearing time and time and time and time again in this book group that I'm in and I thought I'm gonna have to read it because everybody keeps yeah. going on and on I have to scratch that it doesn't always work with me because um I think the last time I did that and allowed myself against my better judgment to pick up a book that I wouldn't ordinarily pick up was Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Wasn't my cup of tea at all. No, um, you didn't like that, no? No, not at all. I, I think I maybe got about five pages in and thought I can't read this anymore. I quite enjoyed that. Oh, did you? Because the way the crawdads sing, the, so again, my daughter had read it and she passed it over and, and my wife read it within about a couple of days and they both thought it was a, a brilliant book. I'm hoping that it's everything it's being hyped up to be because I'm not one for following trends. You know, as I said to you before, you know, Harry Potter was one trend that I could never buy in. <laughs> you know, it's no even for, you know, my children liked it. And when the adult version of the books came out, you know, it wasn't not for me. You know, I like to follow my own path when it comes to books. 
you know, my friends and I, my, uh, one of my close friends, we share the same book too. So she'll maybe say, but then she likes, you know, quite violent books, whereas I've sort of softened a bit and I don't want to read overly violent books anymore. One of the things I was going to say about Delia Owens, which always gives me hope, uh, it's her, that's her debut novel, but I think she's about, I think she may be in her 70s now. No way! I, yeah, I'm sure when I was just doing the research beforehand, and I think she's, you know, I, I'm not sure what her profession was, but this is her first novel. That gives all of us hope. So, yeah, have you have you written a novel? No. Yeah, I've written a, a trilogy of kind of historical crime novels set in between Glasgow, Ireland and America in the late 19th, early 20th century. So I've not written any fiction for a while, but I'm always, I used to always say, whenever I used to go and do talks, my ambition was always to become Scotland's answer to Dan Brown. And I said it, and this, this wee woman said to me, oh son, you want to be able to write better than that. Yeah, I, I don't said like, to her, I don't like. I know, but I said to her, you're missing the point. I said, see, I want to just sell a million copies of my book, then I can go and do what I want. That is refreshing honesty because most people say, oh, no, no, I just want to write a book for the, you know, because I've got this book in me. But, you know, let's be honest, most writers struggle. Yeah. Most authors, you know, really struggle. You know, I know quite a few authors and, you know, they're not in the, the big leagues. They're not Ian Rankins or Val McDermott or Dennis Lehane or Lee, Lee Child or, you know, J.K. Rowling and then, you know, or one of my other, shall we say, not so favourite books, James Patterson. You know, they're not and, you know, make millions so they can do what they like. But most authors, you know, are, you know, wondering where the next penny's coming from. Um, yeah. So I do try and support a lot of the lesser known authors as well. In fact, one of my favourite American authors, I think he's only written about two books. His first book, an author called Jonathan Tropper, he wrote a book called How to Marry a Widower. Not usually a book that I would bother about, but its genesis was a newspaper column, and that's what he was writing about, was being a widower. And he turned his experience into a fiction novel, which was so funny. It's a great title. Honestly, if you can get a hold, I don't know if it's even still. I've got a copy. I would send it to you, but you might, you might never give me it back. <laughs> um, I don't, it should still be in print. I'm sure you can still get it in Waterson's. It's just a book that I'll read time and time and time and time and time again. And because I liked it so much, I went and I'm one of those that if I like a book, I have to read all of their books. So we went and tried to get more. And this is pre the days of, you know, very early, early days of the internet. Get to rely on Waterson's to tell you. And I managed to get another one book, I think, of his. And he's not done anything else since. And I think that must have been 2000 and... In fact, it might even be in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. But if you can get a hold of the book, honestly, it's fan Debbie Dozy. Do you, do you reread a lot of books then? Or like favourite books? Or are you always just looking um, for something new to read? I've got a select few that I will read and read and read again and again and again and again. There's an author called Douglas Kennedy that I like. Um, so he, some of his books are a bit airy fairy, but I like him. So I'll go back sometimes and reread his. Obviously, McIlvaney. I'm quite fussy about what I'll reread again. But for me, I, I think because I've read so many books that you know, at the time, it's the best thing since sliced bread, and then I'll forget all about it. So there's, but there's a few that have stayed with me over the years and stuck with me. You know, that I'll pick up again and again. Because I'm kind of similar to that. You know, I was saying how. If I'm not enjoying a book, I put it down because I also think there's, there's so many other books. If I do occasionally reread a book, there's part of me that feels a wee bit guilty because then I think I could be reading a, a new book that I've not read. So I, I, <laughs> I tend not to, to reread too many books. But there, are, you know, there's a, there is a handful that sometimes you just, I think you, you mentioned it earlier on, sometimes it depends on your mood, what you want to read. And then sometimes you just want yeah, something I mean... you know you're going to love. Friends that know me will not be surprised, but one of my favourite books, and I don't laugh, is <laughs> Twilight. I'm a bit of a ghoul because anything with witches and vampires and werewolves and zombies, I absolutely love, but not usually in books. But I love Twilight and I was super excited the other day to hear that she's actually got another part in of the Twilight series. series. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I like that. And I spent a big chunk of the 90s also reading, and I've still got them. In fact, I'll never part with them. Lots of Star Trek books. I don't particularly like picking up sci-fi and things. You know, if I was going into Watersons, I'd be picking up crime books, thrillers and stuff. But I went through a period in the 90s where, because I'm a massive Star Trek Next Generation fan, and Patrick Stewart's my idol, 
when the TV series was off, you know, you could only way you could get close to Picard was buried in the books. And of course, because I was such, technically, I understand the bloody word in them, but. Because during the, the lockdown, he was doing a series of, was it was it not like a daily? Sonnets, yeah. Sonnet, yeah. I take it you were tuning in avidly. I'd have a I might have a look in. I'm not Shakespeare's biggest fan, but I was there. Uh, no, you're obviously Patrick Stewart's biggest fan. Because I've got a Shakespeare book. Yeah, I like Patrick Stewart. I've seen him live three times and I've met him a couple of times. So that's my hero. And I mean, Tim, we're kind of just, we're almost at the end <laughs> of the podcast. And I suppose, it kind of, as I say, it was taking you on that literary journey of taking you all that way back. You can't remember a time where you didn't read. And I suppose it's the, the other side of it is there'll, there'll never be a time where you've not got a handful of books on the go reading them at the same time. Oh God, no. I mean, um, and you really did bring, stir up some memories when, you know, asking... At times I found it quite painful, actually, because... <laughs> I don't know if I should apologise. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't mean painful as in, oh my God. I found it hard because it's hard for me to single out one particular author. You know, when I want to tell you about 20 different authors, to me, that's me as a book lover. You know, I want to talk about books with somebody, but I want to tell them. And, they, you know, I'm trying to think, looking at you and saying, well, what about William McIlvany? You've you probably read all his books, but... Me and my enthusiasm, you know, he's who you have to read. And anybody that's listening to this podcast will be like, what's Sean about? Well, but is there anybody on the planet that hasn't read them? You know, so... The thing is, there is. I mean, it's that's what the beauty of books is that it's such a subjective thing. So we all haven't read every book and books that you love, other people won't and vice versa. You know, there's books that you don't like that other people will absolutely love. But I, that, that's what I love about books. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you can debate all day long, can't you, about... You know, and I think, I always think, I make fun of the fact that I went through a trashy book period, but I think if you're, if, as long as you're reading, as yeah. long as you're picking up something and reading, you know, my stepdad used to say to me, you'd read the bloody phone book if you could get away with it. You know, I just think as long as you're reading, read, 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 you know, the magazine, a book, a newspaper, you yeah. know, that's how you learn and grow. That is the, the perfect way to end the podcast. Just everybody keep Thank reading. You. If anybody wants to check out some of Jane's choices. If you just go to my website, com, and every guest has their own individual page so you can read back through the choices on the various subjects. But Jane, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you about your, your books, your favourite books and your not-so-favourite books. And I hope one day that you will give us a book yourself. Oh, well, watch the space. <laughs> but thanks very much. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.